These interviews originally aired in 2019. There's nothing quite like the city of New Orleans. A lot of my family is there, and I love the people, the food and architecture, the smells, and of course, that distinctive sound. And it's not just the music. New Orleanians also have distinctive accents and ways of saying things. Everybody knows everyone's family, and so that's sort of like this thing, you know, checking in with your mama and them. Your mama and them means everyone that you're related to. Um, how's your family? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, how Hurricane Katrina changed the accent of the Crescent City. Later in the show, stories about some of America's iconic shorelines that are disappearing. The town that Bob Dylan sang about, Entangled Up in Blue, talks about being right outside a fishing boat, right outside of Delacroix. You know, that's no longer there. But first, Katie Carmichael is a linguist and a professor of English at Virginia Tech. She says Hurricane Katrina was a perfect storm for accent changes. She's interviewed hundreds of New Orleans residents to uncover how their accents and ways of talking have changed since the hurricane. Katie, you were in college at Tulane in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina struck. Did Katrina break your heart? Of course, it broke everyone's heart. Uh, this is one of the things that, you know, when I do interviews with New Orleanians, um, you hear the most heart-wrenching stories. Um, and um, people are, you know, they're absolutely traumatized by this. Um, and on the other hand, you also find um, this this love for the city that is so strong, is so overwhelming, and um, feels different from other places. There's this sense of we almost lost what we had. And um, there's this real sort of treasuring of New Orleans is a place, New Orleans is home, my connection to New Orleans amongst New Orleans, whether they left, were displaced um, or not. So after Katrina hit, what first gave you the idea accents have changed in New Orleans to some extent? Yeah. So um, there were a lot of ingredients in the recipe for language change, okay? So anytime that you have increased contact between groups that um, speak differently, that were not in contact before, um, you often will get language change, and it can be in different directions, right? It can be people talking more like each other, or it can be people emphasizing the differences between uh, me and you, right, this insider-outsider thing. Um, and uh, in New Orleans, you have this physical movement, this physical displacement of people both from the city, right? Everyone was displaced for at least a month when the city was evacuated. Um, so um, people who historically hadn't ever lived anywhere else are now in contact with um, people from elsewhere. And those people are saying things like, well, you pronounce that funny. Right. Um, so there's this awareness that builds. And then there's also um, just this exposure to other ways of thinking uh, and other ways of talking. And then you also have um, these outsiders coming in, right? So post-Katrina, um, the population of New Orleans is really quite different and has a lot more non-locals than it's ever had. So you have a National Science Foundation grant to interview a couple hundred people in New Orleans, any that just delight you that you could tell me about? Oh, there's so many characters in New Orleans. Um, and people just um, have this delightful way of telling stories, right, where you just get this really vivid um, coloring of what it's like to live in the city. Um, one thing that I ask everyone about is um, their favorite place to eat. And that is a question that New Orleanians have opinions about. I mean, capital O opinions about. And um, and I also ended up using that as recommendations. So I would go and say, oh, great. This is a great place to eat. Yeah. Did any of them epitomize some of the language differences that you love? Sure. Yeah. Anytime uh, that I would hear someone say something like making groceries for going grocery shopping, um, some folks would be dropping the the R's, so saying Dolan, that kind of iconic New Orleans dialect that, frankly, I think a lot of the rest of the United States isn't aware that New Orleans 
folks, they don't sound like Southern Bells. They sound kind of like New Yorkers. Can you imitate it a little bit for us? So I heard relatives from that area, my relatives from New Orleans, um, often talking about Dolan. Yep. Mm -hmm. What is that? So that is uh, actually two features in one right there. That's a great word for an example. Um, So we have the feature of R-lessness, so dropping R's, which, um, you know, this is that feature that you hear in Boston and New York as well, right? New York um, and Pakyakan, Harvard Yard, right? Dolan. Um, You absolutely get this um, throughout New Orleans. And then it's also this other feature that affects the ah vowel, where um, your your tongue is slightly raised when you say it. So instead of ah, it's aw, right? And uh, again, this is a thing that sounds kind of New Yorky to us. Um, and uh, you would get this in words like bought and caught. I caught the ball. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but in Dolan, you kind of get both, right? Is that what they used to call in New Orleans the Irish Channel accent? Sure. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And the yat accent. So yat is a word, another word that every New Orleanian knows, but a lot of people who aren't from New Orleans don't seem to be aware of. So yeah, the yat accent, um, which is from the Irish, um, Italian, and German working class immigrants uh, in New Orleans, um, mostly the ones who worked uh, along the the river. So the Irish Channel is a neighborhood in New Orleans um, that's along the Mississippi River where you had a lot of the folks who worked on the in the shipping uh, industry there. Give me more longer examples of the yat accent other than, hey, Ruby, where yat? <laughs> well, uh, one of the ones that uh, people talk about a lot in New Orleans is uh, asking about your mama and them. That is, uh, I think, also iconic because, again, uh, New Orleans has um, this population that uh, the, a lot of people there, they go back for generations, right? So when you live on your block in your neighborhood, you know your neighbor's mom, aunt, uncle, cousin. Everybody uh, knows everyone's family. And so that's sort of like this thing there is um, – you know, checking in with your mama and them. Your mama and them means everyone that you're related to. Um, how's your family? Uh, and again, this idea of sort of these multi-generational relationships in New Orleans too. What do you think has been more influential after Katrina? The influence of people from New Orleans who went to other areas and added mm-hmm. their dialects to to there? Or the influence of Northerners and more white people coming to New Orleans and sort of changing the accent there? That's a great question. Yeah, I I think that a lot of it is this newcomer population that's coming in, um, and they're bringing what I would call their from-anywhere accents, right? So um, they sound, um, we would say, sort of standard and uh, they're they're bringing that to New Orleans. And one of the really interesting things that they're doing, so so your accent is a way of signifying who you are as a person. It's a way of signifying where you're from. Um, and uh, when you have these folks coming in with the from anywhere accents, um, and they're meeting up with these folks who have these really rich New Orleanian accents that indicate that they're authentic, that they were here before Katrina, that they're from here. Um, what you find is a lot of these from anywhere folks want to borrow pieces of that. Uh, so post-Katrina, one of the things that I noticed was this influx of T-shirt shops with local phrases on the T-shirts, right? So um, they would uh, have mayonnaise pronounced as mayonnaise, um, wrench your dis- dishes in the zinc. Uh, these phrases, these catchphrases that are very New Orleanian, make groceries. Um, and uh what you'd mostly see is people who don't natively use this, who who don't talk like this, wearing these T-shirts, right? So again, this kind of borrowing of these linguistic features as saying, well, I belong here too. Um, I'm part of this place too, even if I can't, you know, natively produce these linguistic features. Um, but I do think that a lot of these features, as more attention is drawn to them, um, they start to go away, right? Um, because people kind of want you to listen to what they're saying and not how they're saying it. So if you spend enough time pointing out, oh, that's so cute how you say that, um, people stop doing it that way. Or if you say, (laughs) that sounds ignorant, people stop doing it that way. Um, So I do think that some of this heightened awareness about the things that make New Orleans English unique is part of what is is ushering the decline. When you talk about the New Orleans accent, of course, there's so many. There's so many, yeah. Describe some of the hallmarks of the most distinctive ones. 
there's three dialects that sort of stand out so far uh, in our research, um, and this is sort of the the YAT, the the white working class dialect, um, the black dialect, and the Creole dialect, a historic kind of uh, mixed race, um, typically black, white, indigenous, and French heritage group. So um, starting with the Yat dialect, this is the dialect that sounds like New York, right? This is the dialect where you're going to hear that R-lessness, that dropping the R, um, the Pakyaka and Havid Yad, uh, and that aw sound, that bought sound in it as well. Hello, YouTube. I've seen all these accent tags, and I realized that Southeast Louisiana, especially the New Orleans area, is very underrepresented. Nobody has done our type of accent yet that's called a Yat accent. Yeah, the reason why they call it a Yad accent is because we don't ask, how are you doing, or, you know, what's going on? We ask, hey, where yet? And that is an across-the-board meaning for, where are you at in life? We say things a little bit differently down here, and that is one thing that irks us the most, is when Hollywood films something down in uh, New Orleans, and then they say, you know, they give us these country drawls and everything, make us talk like we from like South Carolina or Georgia or something like that. We don't talk like that. Maybe in other parts of Louisiana, but not New Orleans. The African-American presence in New Orleans is a, a major part of the music, culture, heritage, food scene. Um, and linguistically also, there is a way of speaking that seems to iconically point to this specific New Orleans black identity as well. Um, and here you'll hear a clip of uh, a person who is doing a YouTube recording of themselves and displaying some of the distinctive uh, New Orleans features. One thing that a lot of interviewees commented on a lot to me was the pronunciation of baby, uh, which in uh, New Orleans uh, in the African-American population seems to be pronounced with an extra long initial vowel. So, baby. <laughs> we do not say Nolens. I don't know why people think we say Nolens. Now, we say New Orleans, like we say, we will say New Orleans, but we at least pronounce the, the new. Like we say the new, we don't say New Orleans. Nobody says that. Stop thinking we say that because we don't. It's fake. It's a fraud. I didn't even realize. I mean, I knew I had an accent, but I didn't realize it was like as thick as it is until I moved out here to Atlanta. Everybody's like, say that again, say that again. And if I have to say baby for somebody else again, I'm not. I won't say it. Okay, I'm not. So one of the ways that we look at language change in sociolinguistics is by interviewing people of different ages and uh, looking at how older people and younger people talk, right? The younger people are indicative of the trajectory of change. Um, and the really interesting thing when you look at white, black, and Creole New Orleanians is that the younger populations are doing something completely different than the older populations. Um, and that actually the white and black ways of speaking in New Orleans are diverging further than they had in the past. Um, and this feels a little unexpected given the history of race relations in New Orleans and the segregation that lasted until relatively recently in the history of the city. Um, so how do we kind of reconcile that with the facts? Well, again, when you are more in contact with people, sometimes you sound more like each other. Sometimes you sound more different because you are emphasizing, you know, this is my identity. It's different from yours. Um, we are different groups. Um, and the other interesting thing was um, our Creole speakers, um, our older Creole speakers tend to pattern more with the white New Orleanians and the younger Creole speakers tend to pattern more with the black New Orleanians. So it also seems like there's a shift there in um, the sort of ethnic affiliation that you find. It also amazes me how many distinctive words and phrases there are in New Orleans that you don't hear elsewhere, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I would point to uh, a lot of that being from the French heritage, um, but also the particular mixture of immigrant groups that came there. And of course, the presence of, um, you know, African-Americans. Um, and uh, some of these words come directly from African languages as well. Uh, so gumbo, for example, gumbo is uh, sort of a stew that you eat over rice. Um, it can be seafood or it can be andouille sausage. And um Gumbo comes from an African word for okra, the okra plant. Uh, okra is a key ingredient in gumbo. Another example uh, that comes from the French heritage would be lanyap. 
Uh, Lanyap is what we would say a little something extra. So if you go to the butcher and they give you an extra few slices of meat, that's Lanyap. That's a little something extra. It's bonus kind of. You know, from a young age, I've really cared about the disappearing island populations on the East Coast and the Gulf of Mexico and elsewhere, where people have lived for generations and had very distinctive accents. It pains me to think that we're losing them through climate change. So you have Ile de Jean Charles off the New Orleans coast, where you have populations there, for instance, that still speak a kind of French dialect English. Yeah. Why does it feel painful that we're losing something we can't get back, right? Because language is identity. Language is heritage. Language is history. Um, But language is always changing. It has always changed. That's why when you read Shakespeare, it sounds really different from the way that we speak today. So um, it's it's tough because change is inevitable. You you almost, if you don't embrace it, then you'll be left in the dust. Um, But I absolutely get what you mean about the sort of nostalgia of it as well. And I think that's what fuels a lot of um, the linguistic choices that you find in New Orleans post-Katrina is nostalgia and is wanting um, this piece of New Orleans's history that precedes Katrina, this version of New Orleans where maybe Katrina hadn't happened yet or never happened, um, and to have that through the way that you speak. Katie Carmichael, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this on With Good Reason. Thank you. Katie Carmichael is a linguist and a professor of English at Virginia Tech. Up next, climate change is uncovering beachside graves. During a visit to a melting glacier in Alaska, Rick Van Noy started thinking about the climate change conversation. He thought so often we focus on polar bears and ice caps, but there are changes happening all across America. Van Noy is an author and an English professor at Radford University. He set out across the South to collect Southern stories of climate and resilience. His book is called Sudden Spring, Stories of Adaptation in a Climate Change South. Rick, where did you start looking for places in the South that are experiencing climate change? So I probably started in Norfolk since I'm in Virginia, and I happened to go to Norfolk on on a, what's called a sunny day flood. Um, there was some westerly wind that had kind of moved uh, a small storm surge inland. Couldn't even get to the boat ramp where I was going to meet the Chesapeake Bay Foundation because there was so much water in the streets. There was about a foot of brackish water. Then we got into the boat and we went through some of the neighborhoods and we really saw some sidewalks and streets um, that were underwater. Of course, also in Virginia, I got out to Tangier Island. They've lost about two-thirds of their land mass. Tangier is losing its land so fast that you can even see human remains from cemeteries that have washed into the sandy shore. Yeah, we were... um, uh, a woman named Carol Pruitt Moore had taken me to this island that's north of Tangier called the Uppards. The people used to say they were going upward, so they called it Uppards. And we walked around and scanning the shore, and we were looking at oyster shells and an oyster midden. And she had been talking about how there are um, arrowheads there from the Pocomoke tribes. So I was scanning the ground to look at some, and then she said, don't step there. There's a leg bone. And it was the remains of a you know, body that had kind of washed out from one of the storms. Um, and there were tombstones that were uh, flattened. You know, that I called the, the introduction Tombstones by the Sea because uh, it just seemed like a kind of grim portent for communities, you know, up and down the East Coast that are seeing changes and experiencing changes. Talk about some of the places you visited and what you noticed in Florida. I kind of started in Orlando and New Smyrna Beach, and we went down to Cape Canaveral. And that was really interesting because near Cape Canaveral National Seashore, you're also out near NASA. Near NASA, they've had to do some beach nourishment projects and rebuild the dunes just so that, you know, the launch pads 
for the rockets aren't inundated with seawater. They're even talking about moving those pads inward, what's sometimes called managed retreat. And, you know, managed retreat is something that some of the cities are also talking about in Florida and in, in other places in Virginia, too. Um, the other word they sometimes use is intentional departure. Um, and these are scary. <laughs> these are kind of scary words, right? Right. Um, going to NASA was also interesting because NASA is also one of the government organizations that gives us the science to kind of understand, you know, carbon dioxide levels, et cetera. But also in Florida, I went to the Keys. You know, in the Keys, I definitely saw some of these landscapes that almost look like moonscapes. It's where salt waters come in and kind of drowned out some of the vegetation. One of the things that a person at the Nature Conservancy was talking about is the key deer. So if you go to the Keys, there are these small deer that have adapted to living in the Keys, and they depend on the on the fresh water there. But while the salt water is kind of coming in and pushing out that freshwater lens, and so the key deer are in a lot of trouble. And um, he's looking at you know, off-site conservation plan for some of the key deer. And that, you know, like the tombstones was kind of another kind of scary sign about climate change. If we have to move species off the island, do we eventually have to move people off the island? In Louisiana, you were visiting there with your sons and going mm-hmm. through areas on a map that you realized were now submerged. So areas on a map that was not that old are now underwater. Yeah, I think NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA has released these new nautical charts in Plaquemines Parish, which is below Louisiana, and they've taken about 40 place names off the chart. Um, I think they've lost land that about equal to the state, the state of Rhode Island. Um, so they've lost a lot of land there. Like one of the towns, the town that Bob Dylan sang about, Entangled Up in Blue, talks about being right outside a fishing boat, right outside of Delacroix, you know, that's no longer there. Um, You can kind of zoom in on Google Earth and, you know, and see just sort of grasses in some of these former places. But my son and some of his friends were with me, and they were going to kind of camp and canoe in the the bayous, and we went to the Isle de Jean Charles. And that's one of the places that's talked about as being where there are the, the first climate change refugees. There's money to relocate them from the island. And when you get to the island, there's a sign that is written in kind of faded ink and marker and kind of fading letters. And But it, what it basically says is, we are not leaving. And he also says something like, if the island is not good, stay away. But that's a different issue, right? People do love where they, they're from, yeah. where they grew up, where they live. Everybody loves living on the water. Mm-hmm. So no surprise that people don't want to move. How does that argument relate to climate change? It's that we'll have to spend billions to try to keep people in these soggy, ever-rising waters? I think that's the way the state looks at it. And it's also, yeah, it's human safety and wellness. Um, and I think in Louisiana, you know, I think they drew a plan for places they could sort of protect and save and places they could not. And that mm. community, unfortunately, now it's poor and it's Native American. So that also kind of gets into the issue of environmental justice. You know, why were they not included? You know, it's a complicated issue. And there's only about 25 families on the Isle of Jean Charles. And so one person said to me, you know, if you can't figure this all out for 25 families on an island, how are you going to figure it out for New Orleans or Miami? But that's the that's the issue is um, money. is the flooding and it's the prevention um, and it's doing something on the front end to prepare for yeah eventual disaster on the back end. I mean I think that was sort of the lesson of Katrina is they needed to invest um, yeah. and they've spent you know billions of dollars on new surge barrier. They lost some of their wetlands, so they have new surge barriers and they have new pump systems. And they've upgraded things that they can. And, of course, it still might not be enough. Um, they're consulting with the Dutch. So is Norfolk. Um, and that's, that's the sort of Dutch attitude about this is let's, let's try to adapt and let's try to manage it as much as we can. It kind of hurts my heart to hear you describe it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, you experience um, 
eventually you experience a little bit of grief, a little bit of sadness when you do this, you know. At times you experience something else. You wonder, you know, it's so big and so vast. How can we, um, surely we can't damage it. But then you get up close to it and you see some of the damage. You know, I definitely, I think I was on Cumberland Island and there was a, you know, a live oak and some other trees that were down and I sort of reached out a hand to touch it and it was almost like I was touching a body laid to rest. Um, yes. And that affected me. What did you notice about the politics of the region? So here you have people that are plenty smart and people that know the water is changing, the climate is changing, and the effects are very real. Um, what are some of the ways you saw people get around the politics of that? So that's why I kind of went to a lot of these um, localized communities that were seeing change. And I, I did sort of have this, have this hypothesis that surely people wouldn't, they wouldn't deny climate change if they had these, you know, front row seats to it. Um, but that wasn't always the case, you know, not the case in Tangier Island, um, not the case in Florida and some places where, you know, I think they wanted to ban the word or not use the word in official reports. Um, but other places, other cities and communities, and some with Republican mayors, mayors from, you know, both sides of the political aisle, they really just see it more as a practical issue. They're used to solving problems with sidewalks, taking out the trash. And increasingly, they're taking calls, though, about about flooding and what are we going to do about the flooding? And so it's a kind of quality of life issue that's affecting people's ability to get to school or the store. So that's kind of how they're seeing it. The problem is, is yeah, there's not really a, a kind of national discussion. So even though you've got these communities in the South that are doing things and leading on this and trying all kinds of initiatives, not just on the adaptation front, but on the mitigation front, solar initiatives and things like that, we don't yet have this kind of coherent national strategy, but maybe, you know, these conversations and these, these things that are happening at the local level will eventually bubble up. You wrote about measures in Florida regarding transportation that the older folks won't vote for because they don't think they'll be around. One planner said they had a hard time getting public transportation initiatives in Florida because a significant portion of the voting block is, say, over... Um, 60, and they worry that they won't be around to use those public transportation initiatives. Rick Van Noy is a professor of English at Radford University. His book is Sudden Spring. These interviews originally aired in 2019. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason. These interviews originally aired in 2019. We all look forward to a vacation, get away, be a tourist, relax and see the sights, maybe taste new foods. And lots of us share our travels on Instagram and Facebook. But the idea of just traveling for fun as a tourist is relatively new. Will McIntosh is a professor of history at the University of Mary Washington. He's the author of Selling the Sights, the Invention of the Tourist in American Culture. Will, what first piqued your interest in the whole concept of early tourism in America? When I was in high school, my summer job was working as a waiter on a dinner cruise boat in the Adirondacks that went around a lake that had a bunch of Gilded Age robber baron mansions on them. And I listened to the same narration four times a day <laughs> from the captain. It just got me really interested in the way people spent their leisure time in the 19th century. In your book, you talk about the difference between the rise of tourists, the new notion of tourism, and what we'd had before, which were adventurers, travelers. Before the turn of the 19th century, the words tourist and traveler are actually used interchangeably. And it's really only in the 19th century that their meanings begin to diverge. And this is because there's a whole new infrastructure of transportation and of writing about travel that come about in the first decades of the 19th century. And tourists quickly becomes 
the label that gets applied to people who take advantage of those new technologies. So what was the difference? What was the popular understanding of what a traveler was and what a tourist was as the dawn of the tourism industry began? A tourist is someone who is fundamentally a consumer. They're buying a a train ticket instead of making their way on their own two feet or on their own horse or something like that. You really begin to see this phenomenon in the 1820s. And that's a product of the fact that by the 1820s, you can buy a ticket to get from one place to another. And that ticket may cover a range of, of steamboats, stagecoaches, railroads within the next couple of decades. And the idea is, It was easy, relatively speaking, to get from one place to another because you just went to a ticket booth, bought a piece of paper, and then somebody else moved you through space. As opposed to in the 18th century, you had to figure out where you had to go and how you had to get there. And that often involved a lot of improvisation as you went. Travel was hard before tickets. Yeah, so I I trace in the book two journeys undertaken by this man named William Richardson. Um, And at the beginning of the 19th century, he travels from Boston to New Orleans, down the East Coast, and ultimately over the Natchez Trace through what was then Mississippi Territory. And it was a hideous experience. Yeah, yeah. And he's constantly getting lost, and his horse is dying, and he has to fall in with strangers who promise to get him from one place to the other. Um, And he gets to New Orleans after months and months, and he's just exhausted and miserable and hopes to never do it again. Then in the 1840s, By this time, he's older. He's become very successful. He's living in Louisville, Kentucky. And he and his wife are prosperous enough that they can afford to take a trip to Europe. So they have to get from Louisville to New York. And they basically walk down to the wharves in Louisville. They buy a ticket, buys them a berth on a steamboat up to Wheeling, Virginia, gets them on a stagecoach over the mountains to Cumberland, Maryland, gets them on a train car down through Baltimore, up through Philadelphia, and ultimately to New York. Now, I would think that was a tough journey. (laughs) Yeah. By our standards, it absolutely was. But he perceives it as being the height of luxury because he doesn't have to do anything. He is is being transported. That seems exhausting to us who are used to just getting in a car and getting on the interstate, right? But compared to literally wandering around in the dark in swamps in Mississippi territory at the dawn of the 19th century, right, this feels like uh, not only luxury but ease. You know, someone else is doing the work for him. What had changed in those decades from when he had the awful journey when he was a kid? Well, long-distance roads got better. Turnpike companies invested a lot of money in building long-distance roads. The invention of the steamboat, uh, which turned rivers all over the interior of North America into two-way highways for commerce and for people. So you had railroads, which could go almost anywhere, um, which relied on you know, coal and not animal power and weren't dependent on the seasons or the weather or anything like that. And these early railroads, you know, in the 1830s and the 1840s, they're not going very fast usually. They're going 15 miles an hour often, which doesn't seem like much to us. But to them, they found this an absolute whirlwind. And you get all these people saying, how could you even see anything in a train car that's going so fast, that's going 15 (laughs) miles an hour? You know, you can't get any experience of the world around you. And so, therefore, something about that way of traveling must be superficial you're not actually getting a real experience of where you're traveling through. So then, you know, going on horseback or even taking a stagecoach becomes the true traveler way to go because you're somehow getting a more authentic experience of the landscape you're traveling through. So was the culture at that time saying, wow, it's amazing to be a a tourist. Look what you can do by buying a ticket and getting from whiz-bang here to there. Or were people deriding it? So it's a little bit of both. There are plenty of people who are buying tickets and are going to resort hotels where everything is all included and love it because it's easy and it's fun and it has its social pleasures. We have, a, I think, a cliche nowadays about going to Niagara Falls to get married. People were doing that in the 19th century and people were going to Niagara Falls and saying absolutely the most unoriginal things ever looking at the falls and they loved it and that was fine. But there's also a class of people Often people who like to think of themselves as intellectuals or sort of culturally sophisticated, who increasingly began to look down at that. And they're the ones who I think really felt the sting of of the satirist, pointing out to them that that kind of travel was superficial. And so they engaged in a lot of strategies. If you read their letters and their diaries and that kind of thing, they are very busy trying to convince everybody that what they're doing is not silly, superficial tourism. It's something real. It's true travel. And what sort of things would they write? This is something where it really depended if you were a man or a woman. For men, they often 
would record what they thought of as scientific observations in their journal. So they, there's these 19th century travel diaries and letters that people wrote home are full of these atmospheric and meteorological observations, which I can't imagine that they were of any real use to any actual scientists. But, you know, they helped people frame their trip as being for scientific purposes. They're full of geological observations, right? You know, there's lawyers and doctors traveling around imagining what the what mineral riches might lay underneath the land they're traveling <laughs> under, even though they have no qualifications to think about that. For women, the observations tended towards what we now might think of as the sociological or even the anthropological. Or uh, for women, it was often about education. They would make observations of Native peoples, for example. You know, so they, they see a group of Native American women and say, oh, well, they kind of look happy in the woods or something like that. And the other thing that women did, right, is often brought children with them and framed their, their travel as educational, right? That what they were doing was, was teaching children about the world. And that as a result, what they were doing was not silly and superficial, but was meaningful. So who during this period is really starting to make the tourism industry take off? Well, it's generally small-town businessmen in um, places that have some kind of feature that they can sell, right? Whether it's a mountaintop view or a waterfall or mineral springs that people will come and drink for their health. In the 19th century, business people in small towns, right, are often what, what we might think of as boosters. The, in this period of rapid growth in rural America, they are trying desperately to, to direct as much of that growth as they can to their own locality. And a lot of times that takes the form of, you know, agricultural development, stuff like that. But the, there are these places that might not have a lot of natural resources for the kinds of more traditional kinds of development that were happening in the 19th century. Um, so their local boosters had to think of other things to drive development and growth. And they very quickly attached themselves to this notion of leisure travelers. So places like Saratoga Springs in New York, places like the the hot springs and the warm springs in Western Virginia, right, which are places that are often in pretty remote mountain valleys, don't necessarily have a lot of other opportunities for economic development. But local entrepreneurs say, hey, we can get people to come here and spend the summer and drink the water, that that's a real potential source of local economic development. And people did do it. Absolutely, they did it, yes. Um, Niagara Falls, New York, on both sides of the border, there's a group of local business people and landowners who get very committed to promoting the idea of traveling to Niagara Falls so that you can experience the true sublime in the face of the falls. Um, and these people uh, write tourist guidebooks. In fact, they invent some of the very first tourist guidebooks. They create the genre in the 1820s uh, because it's, it's a novel thing. They have to explain to city dwellers, here's how you get here. This is why you should come. This is what you should see. And this is what you should think about it, right? This is what it should be valuable to you about it. Uh, they really invent the genre of the guidebook. That's in the 1820s and the 1830s. Uh, by the time you get to the 1850s and the 1860s, the urban consumer base for that kind of, of summer vacation is developed enough uh, that they, I mean, guidebooks continue to exist, but these local entrepreneurs are taking out one-column ads in, in newspapers, you know, throwing in a few key words about health and the picturesque or whatever the various categories are that they're they're trying to sell in their destination, right? Be, the consumer base had become trained enough that they could use this kind of newspaper shorthand by the 1850s. It's interesting. So as the tourism industry matures and grows and we get into the turn of the 20th century, people are still deriding mere tourists. I think that's true because I realized this when I was working on this book and I was living in New York and I would travel around from coffee shop to coffee shop. And one coffee shop I was at had a little sticker on the window that said, not for tourists, which jumped right out at me because I was trying to understand tourists. So I sat down and I researched what this was. And it turns out it was, it was a reference to a guidebook called Not for Tourists, published in the early 2000s. And it struck me that this is a, a really weird thing, right? That here's a tourist guidebook that's called Not for Tourists. It was in that moment that I realized that being a traveler is all about distinguishing yourself from a tourist. So what that allowed me to see is that this is actually a through line from this period I'm talking about in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, all the way up to our present day. So I think it, it, you think even today about something like Lonely Planet, which is you know, a guidebook that you literally walk into Barnes & Noble and purchase before you go somewhere. But then what it purports to tell you is how to not be a tourist when you get there. 
And that what that says to me is that people are still really grasping to make travel experiences authentic. Do you ever succumb to this yourself? Do you ever think as you're traveling that that you have to be a little bit more thoughtful about it instead of simply crashing on the beach and thinking the waves are great? Oh, of course, right? Because everybody does. <laughs> of course I do, right? I'm always, when I go places, I, you know, I want to think that I'm having some real authentic experience of the place that I'm going to. Um, but what writing this book has taught me is that, is that I am playing a game with myself in my head when I do that. And you're in good company. <laughs> well, yeah, me and everybody else in the world, yeah. <laughs> I've waited around and waited around this old town too long. Summer's almost Will McIntosh is a professor of history at the University of Mary Washington and the author of Selling the Sights, the invention of the tourist in American culture. Coming up next, that not-so-fresh country air. In 2019, the National Parks Conservation Association released a startling report showing that out of 417 national parks, 401 suffer from air pollution. Chris Zahowski is a professor of park, recreation, and tourism studies at Old Dominion University. He joins me to talk about where the pollution is coming from and efforts underway to curb it. Chris, how big of a problem is air pollution in national parks and state parks? Air pollution is one of the many emerging challenges that national parks and state parks face. But is the pollution any worse in the nation's parks than it is outside the nation's parks? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There was a a recent study where 33 national parks were uh, analyzed for their ozone values, and they were compared to the 20 largest uh, metropolitan areas in in the United States. And in some cases, there wasn't a significant difference between those 33 parks and the 20 major U.S. cities, not all pollution stays localized. So we can see signals from pollutants over in in China um, from industrial development on the Asian continent in our parks and protected areas here in the United States. How much of the pollution the national parks all across the country are experiencing is coming from the visitors themselves it's easy to assume that the visitors are causing most of the problems. More largely, it's industry, it's uh, wildfire events that are becoming more common, that are spreading pollutants over greater scales. Uh, Visitors definitely have a role to play in reducing the pollution that's generated through their travel, but it's definitely a bigger problem than just the Griswolds driving their, you know, family automobile to the national parks on their uh, summer vacation. So how could I be to blame if I'm visiting the Grand Canyon, let's say, where, how am I bringing air pollution into the Grand Canyon? Sure. So just the the act of flying a plane on a summer vacation, I just flew to Idaho for my summer vacation and I rafted a river. The travel that took me to Idaho generates a variety of different pollutants. Then there's the driving to specific places. So for example, uh, Zion National Park in Zion Canyon There's steep sandstone canyon walls that people are going to climb. They're going to hike up to the edges of and look out over. Um, But those canyon walls trap pollutants. So just by driving a car in Zion Canyon, they'd end up actually respiring the same things that they're creating through their travel. So uh, that, that would be one way you or I might be implicated in the broader challenge. It's so interesting you mentioned the airplane flights. Were you as outraged as some people that a bunch of Hollywood celebrities and other stars and luminaries were lambasted a couple of weeks ago for flying to the climate summit in Europe in private jets? Yeah, it's it's a much bigger problem than, you know, our individual flights. I think we need to be conscious of our travel, but we really have larger policy needs that go far beyond the individual travel patterns of a group of celebrities or of myself flying to a vacation in Idaho. We need to be conscious of our travel, but really when we look at the proportional distribution of pollution that we're creating through our travel, it's really a lot smaller uh, than broader trends that are created by market forces or by the way that we're currently consuming and, and using a variety of different fuels. So um, I, I think it's 
it's a little bit of a red herring, right, to, to look at the travel of celebrities and say that they're not practicing what they preach. If they're buying offsets, then they're doing the best they can, given the structure and the system in which they're operating. Do you think we should limit the number of visitors who can come to the national parks? That's sort of at the, the crux of our challenges. You know, this is our public land. And the challenge is, as more and more folks, both within our country and outside of our country, are flocking to these places, do we want to feel like we're in Times Square when we're gazing out over the Grand Canyon? Um, these are kind of hard choices we need to make uh, as we think about, you know, our public lands and and how we want to use them and what kind of experiences we want out of them. And you know, we have 800 billion visits to protected areas in a year worldwide. And if we disperse those visits over a larger area, I think people would be happier. Our impacts on those places would be fewer. And uh, we'd be doing justice to, I think, some of the values that we profess as a society to care about these places. Do you think visitors are noticing bad air quality in parks, or is that just something that researchers have discovered? You know, it depends. I was studying in, in Utah, and the mountainous terrain in Utah has the the ability to trap pollution under what are known as inversions. And so folks out in those areas are very familiar with uh, inversions, with particulate matter, with some of the air quality lingo. Uh, we, we have a variety of studies that show that people will leave these mountainous environments where pollution is trapped to escape to places where there isn't pollution. In other situations, folks, if they can't see it, they oftentimes miss it. Uh, some of the, the strategies that the parks are using don't necessarily remove the broader crowding challenges. So Zion National Park is a great example of this. Um, back in the early 2000s, they uh, banned, effectively banned personal automobiles and instituted a mandatory shuttle. But Zion's seen this incredible growth in visitation as the rest of our uh, national parks have. And so the shuttle system that was built for the early 2000s is struggling to meet the needs of today's visitors. So I, I totally agree with you that that alternative transit services are, are one of the, the big solutions. But depending on the unit and depending on growth in visitation, other strategies, dispersing folks to different units or to restrict the number of people who can access these, these places to try to alleviate air quality concerns, but also provide the desired experience that visitors are, mm-hmm. are coming there for uh, are, are definitely strategies that parks are warming up to and, and definitely considering. Is the pollution harming people or is it damaging plants and native animals? In a word, yes. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's doing both. So uh, it, folks uh, who are visiting these places, if you're there for a uh, a number of days, then your the impact of uh, elevated particulate matter uh, in in that space is definitely going to be greater than if you're there for two hours and you get out of your car and you snap the picture and, and then you drive on to the next place. Um, so sometimes it depends on the dosage or the amount of time that you're in these places for, in terms of the impacts that uh, air pollution might have on us. It also depends on the pollutant. So uh, whether it's particulate matter or ozone or uh, nitrogen dioxide or a variety of the other uh, criteria pollutants that the Environmental Protection Agency regulates. But definitely impacts to uh, local flora and fauna are something that the parks monitor and try to uh, prevent. So that could be impacts to vegetation, to watersheds. It could be bioaccumulation of mercuries, which the parks have done a lot of great work with addressing. Um, But the impacts are multifold. Um, And so anyone who's spending time in these places uh, is definitely experiencing um, some kinds of impacts. And depending on how long they they are there or uh, if they're always there, that'll dictate the severity. Have you personally ever experienced a sort of pollution that really impeded the quality of your visit at one of these parks? Absolutely. I I have a few different examples. We were on a river trip in Bears Ears and there was was an oil spill upriver. So there was actually a boom that was placed in front of the the put-in where we were actually going to launch our seven-day river trip from. And they cleaned up most of the, the pollution from that spill, uh, but, you know, we could smell it and we could see it in the water. And, and that definitely uh, definitely affected me. It affected everyone else on the trip, both emotionally but also physically. And it's part of the reason that I I do this work and I'm passionate about the work I'm, I'm doing because I, I think we have a long way to go to reduce the impacts that, that we're seeing in these special places. I was visiting – actually, I was visiting a friend in Salt Lake – I went up 
uh, with him skiing at Alta Ski Area, which is one of the kind of fabled ski resorts in in Utah and, and in the West and in the world. And coming down from Alta, you know, it was a sunny, beautiful day. The snow was was gorgeous and the cloud, there were hardly a cloud in the sky. And, and then I dropped down below what they call the inversion layer, which is a layer of clouds. So we were above the clouds when we were skiing and I dropped down below it into the Salt Lake Valley where the city is and everything turned gray. Um, I could feel, kind of smell the diesel. Um, I could feel my chest getting tight, um, but it definitely changed my trajectory in terms of the work that I do. So uh, air quality became something really important to me, trying to understand how that affected not only me, but other folks um, who live in places like Salt Lake. I'm a big fan of environmental literature and Terry Tempest Williams, who's kind of a famous conservationist and environmental writer. She says, parks are breathing places in a time when we all are trying to catch our breath. And the reality is they're not always. The air that we breathe outside of these parks is sometimes the same as what we're breathing inside them. And I think the the solutions definitely also need to come from outside the parks themselves. We need to get active in trying to change some of our own behaviors, but more broadly change our consumption of fossil fuels as a society and the energy sources that we're using. Chris Zahowski, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. I really appreciated it. Chris Zahowski is a professor of park recreation and tourism studies at Old Dominion University. These interviews originally aired in 2019. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell, Thanks for listening.